And, you know, Jesus talks about being the shepherd and the gate Mm -hmm. and all these other things, (laughs) but he never goes through and says things like, no, I really am a gate. Like (laughs) I'm a door. Um, I have an actual knob. And yet he does that essentially here. Hello, and welcome to another pedagogical episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim. He's Ken Hensley. We together are uh, bringing our various backgrounds and experiences to bear. Uh, He was a Baptist. I was a Nazarene, a Free Methodist, a few other things. We both ended up Catholic, and some of you are already wondering why, why, why. Well, that's the whole purpose of this show we do On the Journey. And uh, if you like what you're watching, please come visit us at uh, chnetwork.org for more episodes and more mm-hmm. stories of other people like us. I swear we are not the only two people to have ever done this. Uh, there are actually many, many more. You can find their stories at chnetwork.org. And please connect with us and check out our episodes and our shows and resources page in our online community, community.chnetwork.org. Ken, are you ready again? Yes. Pedagogy. Yes, we're ready for some pedagogy. Uh, You know, when you hear like a a piece of classical music, um, you know, or even a pop song, you hear a few themes come up, you know, Mm -hmm. something in the verse. And and of course, your son is a musician and I was a musician as well. And then, you know, by the time you get to the end, like all the things are playing in together. And that's somewhat Mm -hmm. what we're doing today, taking a bunch of pieces from a bunch of different conversations we've had so far and talking about how they all fit together. Yeah, we um, we summarized the Eucharist as sacrifice a couple of weeks ago, and then I wanted to summarize the real presence, and there was too much material, so we did a bunch last week, and now we're doing a bunch this week, and there's some overlap and some repetition, but I'm pulling together a lot of threads here, Well, you pedagogically. Know, to, to quote from the White Stripes while we're on the music theme, you've said it once before, but it bears repeating. So, Yes, it does. Okay, so, so you let's, to- let's repeat it. All right. Well, listen, backing up just a bit, um, early on in this series, I made the comment that my conversion to the Catholic faith, um, it wasn't a matter of someone coming along and dropping some massively inescapable mathematical proof into my lap or something like that. It, It wasn't that. It was definitely an accumulation of evidences over time. And this is certainly the case with respect to the doctrine of the real presence of Christ. It was an accumulation of evidences because there is no passage of scripture. There is is no New Testament text that says, quote, Jesus is present in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity, you know, unquote. There's nothing like that. It was an accumulation of evidences from history, from scripture, echoes, uh, fulfillments of typology and whatnot from a lot of sources, really, that led me over time to embrace the Catholic teaching on this particular issue. Well, we began last week, as I said, summing up the evidences, some of these evidences on the real presence of Christ. And what I want to try to do today is complete that summary, if possible. Well, we're going to let you try, at least. Okay, so some slight, quick overlap in which I will just, I will rein myself in and not go off into explanations and detail and all that, okay? That's what we have the whole episode archive for. So you can go back and pick up some of those threads if you want more detail. 
we're not leaving things out on purpose. We're just trying to get to the get to the meat. Yeah. Okay. And so, first of all, there was the evidence from early church history, which was very powerful in my life and in yours as well. We covered this last week. So here, I simply want to repeat that reading deeply into the writings of the early church fathers and beyond, I became personally convinced that this, that is the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, had been the faith of the church. Just that. Became convinced that this had been the faith of the church from the beginning in both East and West. And so I I encourage our viewers, our listeners who want to hear more of the evidence for this, check out previous episodes of this series, especially parts one and parts uh, parts one and eight, okay? Although we touch on history in just about all of them in one way or another. Okay, secondly, there were a couple of statements in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 that seemed to point in the direction of the Lord's Supper being something more than a merely symbolic meal of remembrance. The first, of the, uh, the first was St. Paul's implicit identification of the Lord's Supper with the supernatural food and drink that God gave the Israelites to sustain them on their journey through the wilderness to the Promised Land. And we'll come back to this in a bit. I just want to state it. It was his implicit identification of the Lord's Supper with the manna and with the water that sprang from the rock. We'll come back to that. The second was St. Paul's really unnerving, is the word that comes to my mind, description of what it means to receive the Lord's Supper unworthily. This is in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. To receive unworthily, Paul says, is to, I'm quoting now, profane the body and blood of the Lord. To receive unworthily is, I'm again quoting him now, is to drink judgment on oneself. Because of this, Paul goes on to say, some have become weak. That is because they have been receiving unworthily. Some have become ill. Some, he says, have even died. And I remember thinking that if Paul conceived of the Lord's Supper as a simple time to remember and to proclaim, doesn't his language seem a bit extreme? I mean, in fact, doesn't it seem awfully extreme? On the other hand, maybe not so extreme if he believed that in the Lord's Supper, a miracle was taking place in which Christ's body and blood were present and being given as food. So there was that. Yeah. And we covered those in kind of de- uh, more detail last week. Point three is this. So there was the evidence of history. There were these items in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. And then there was the evidence from, the old, from old Testament typology, which we're going to look at from a couple of different angles. It was the evidence from Old Testament typology, beginning with the miracle of the manna, which seemed to have its new covenant fulfillment in the Eucharist. Okay, so just sort of catching us up quickly then. In the Old Testament, God gave the Israelites bread from heaven to sustain them on their journey through the desert. In the new covenant, God gives us the true bread from heaven to sustain us on our journey through the desert of this world. And remember our discussion of the Lord's Prayer some four or five weeks back, where Jesus said, give us this day our epiousion, our our super substantial, our supernatural bread, okay? In the Old Testament, he gave them bread from heaven. In the New Testament, he gives us the true bread from heaven. And here's the thing. When it comes to biblical typology, the new covenant fulfillment is always greater much greater than the Old Testament type. 
it's never less than the Old Testament type. And so if the manna was great, a miracle, bread falling from heaven every day, how much greater is its fulfillment in the Eucharist going to be? Okay, on this one, we looked at two passages. And feel free, Matt, if you have anything to say to jump in. You're, sit, you're very thoughtful. You're sitting there and listening. As if it's... I'm just stroking my <laughs> Lenten beard, which is growing bigger with each episode, and, and just kind of letting it all soak soak in. You know, the, the mm-hmm. I think the clearest example of the new covenant fulfillment being, you know, greater than the old one. I mean, remember John the Baptist had one kind of baptism, and yeah. immediately, you know, Jesus comes on the scene and says, well, John's baptism was good, but— yeah. Yeah, I have something. I have something extra for. Yeah, this is the thing. So, I mean, it, this is it's the pattern throughout scripture. This, this is the thing um, with, especially in the New Testament, with the relationship of the old covenant to the new covenant, the relationship of typology to fulfillment, the old covenant, the laws written on tables of stone. Paul says in Second Corinthians three, and the new covenant is written on the tables of human hearts. And he says, "You are our letter, you know, written on by the Spirit." So yeah, it, it, it's this. Yeah, your ancestors ate that bread. It was great, but they all died. Yeah, yeah they all died. Here's the but bread. I've got it. I've got some bread yeah. that you know, and and which is what you're about to. Okay, get. on this one, when we looked at two passages, we looked at John chapter six, which I want to summarize in about a third of the space we took last week on this one, though. John chapter six, the bread of life discourse. This chapter begins, you will remember, with the feeding of the five thousand the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. The very next day, the crowds who had witnessed this miracle, and maybe more important, had had their bellies filled, they asked Jesus to show them a sign. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, they say to Jesus. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? In other words, how about some more food? Do we have some more loaves? We've got some more fish that you can multiply. We want to eat again. Okay, Jesus responds to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So it sounds at first as though Jesus is simply saying, using metaphorical language, simply saying, come to me and believe in me. This is what you need to do. Well, that would be all good and well, Ken, but aren't the people who are there who were fed the day before, hadn't they all come to Jesus and believed in him already? I mean, it seems to me... Yes, they have. Like they'd already fulfilled those criteria. Yes, they have. And that's why what Jesus goes on to say just becomes more and more intense. Because Jesus continues at this point. He says, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and as you mentioned, they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. My response as an evangelical, again, is all right, so far, so good. All Jesus is saying is that he is going to give his flesh for us on the cross and his suffering and death on the cross, and that we will then eat his flesh by coming to him and by believing in him. Again, it's all metaphorical. But then, when the crowds begin to dispute among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? In other words, if this is metaphorical, they're not catching on. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus absolutely scandalizes everyone, including the twelve. He switches to a Greek verb that means not simply to eat, but to gnaw, or to chew, or to crunch, or to munch, a very strong Greek word. And he repeats it four times, right in a row, really. Truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, unless you eat, that's a normal Greek word for, for, for eating, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who gnaws on my flesh 
and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. He who gnaws on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. He who chews on me will live because of me. He who chews, he who gnaws on this bread will live forever. In other words, he's just pounding it in. Yeah. yeah, this scandalizes them on a number of levels, just so you know, because, you know, not only is he invoking uh, the drinking of blood, yeah. which is forbidden by the Mosaic law, but he's also presenting what would seem to his hearers to be a form of cannibalism. So he's just, yeah. you know, messing with their heads in, in a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, furthermore, there are a whole bunch of uh, different references in the Old Testament to the idea of uh, God saying these people, you know, you know, they, you they eat up my people. They eat the flesh of my people as a way of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, saying they persecute my people. There's there's all kinds of strange images going here. And you know, Jesus talks about being the shepherd and the gate mm-hmm. and all these other things, but he never goes through and says things like, "No, I really am a gate. Like <laughs> I'm a door. Um, I have an actual knob." Yeah. And yet he does that essentially here. Yeah, this is why, by the way, the, the thing you just bring up about the cannibalism and the, the prohibition of, of, of eating meat with the blood in it, which we're going to come back to next week, actually, in a little more detail. But this is part of, I mean, he's speaking to a Jewish crowd. This is a, a, a good measure, to a good measure, this is why they respond to his words by saying, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? I mean, we can't even listen to this. And then we read, after this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. In other words, to get back to what you mentioned earlier, many of those, not not just a few, but remember we have crowds there, but we have many disciples, many of those who had already come to Jesus, many of those who had already believed in him, John tells us they walked away and they, they drew back and they no longer went about with Jesus. They left him. And here's the thing. If Jesus was saying, with all of this, eat my flesh and drink my blood language, if he was speaking metaphorically, and all he was really saying to them was that they should come to him and they should believe in him, if there was ever a time, surely this would be the time in which Jesus would explain, at at least to the 12, at, at minimum, that he would explain, I'm only speaking metaphorically. This is just a figure of speech. I'm just calling you to come to me and to believe in me. Instead, after this, Jesus looks at the 12 and he says, will you also go away? Not a word of explanation, not a word. Will you also go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and we have come to know you are the Holy One of God. It sounds as though if they had said, yeah, we're going to go away, Jesus would have let them go away as well. Because he, he just asked, are you going to leave as well? So, you know, again, though, looking at this as an evangelical, as a Baptist, I would have to say there's no verse here in chapter 6. There, there's no verse where Jesus just says, hey, look, I'm talking about the Eucharist. The Eucharist, in the Eucharist, my body and my blood are going to be given to you as food and drink. This is what I'm talking about. There's no verse that says that. At the same time, I could see that whatever Jesus was saying here, he wasn't merely saying, come to me and believe in me. He certainly wasn't. Yeah, and that's, uh, I think that that key insight really helps show show forth that point, because it doesn't say because of this many Pharisees and tax collectors and prostitutes 
who mm -hmm. were just kind of curious and wanted to see what all the fuss was about, decided that it wasn't really for them. Right. It's not what the verse says in no. John. <laughs> it says many of his disciples even turned away. And, you know, at this point, you know, Jesus, you know, the Gnostic version of Jesus, you know, mm -hmm. as the Gnostics envisioned him might have turned to the, you know, because you see stuff like this kind of in the Gospel of Thomas, mm -hmm. right? Which is, you know, rejected by the church. And, you know, at this point, the Gnostic Jesus might say something like, yeah, I just said something crazy to see if they'd stick around. You know, um, I'm just trying to scare off the pretenders because you guys, yeah. you guys are the secret group that really knows what's going on. No, instead he says, well, yeah, what do you think? I've just laid it all yeah. out. Are you going to stick around or are you going to go? And <laughs> which is, I mean, no wonder Peter says, I mean, he doesn't say, yes, Jesus, we believe exactly what you mm -hmm. said, uh, you know, mm -hmm. about eating your flesh and drinking your blood. No, he says, well, honestly, we trust you to this point on everything else. So I have no idea what you're talking about, but I trust you. Yeah. I mean, that's essentially the, the color of Peter's yeah, words. You're reminding me of those times when Jesus spoke in parables or whatnot, and he would he would purposely allow the hard-hearted Jewish leadership, the Pharisees, scribes. Who were obviously not there to be right, his disciples. Right. Who had not come to him right. and not he, believed he him. He would allow them very different crowd. He would allow them to remain blind and and non-comprehending. But here you have disciples walking away and not following him anymore. And Jesus lets them go. And then you have him saying to the 12, how about you? Are you, are, are you going to stay? So this is something different. This is something different. And what I could see while still an evangelical was that whatever he's saying here, he's not simply saying, come to me and believe in me. That is not a, a, an explanation that does justice to the details and the flow of this passage. In some way, shape or form, Jesus was teaching his disciples that the Father would provide for them his body and blood as the new covenant fulfillment of the manna, as true food and true drink, again, in some way, shape, or form, to sustain them on their journey through the wilderness of this world. Okay, that, that's the first passage on the manna. But then there, the second one was 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6, that we've looked at a couple of times, and I'll just give the shortest version here, the Apostle Paul, he reminds the believers in Corinth that even though the Old Testament people of God had been baptized into Moses, even though they, and now I'm quoting him, even though they all ate the same supernatural food and all this, and all drank the same supernatural drink, most of them failed to persevere in faith. Most of them didn't make it to the promised land. And in verse six, Paul says, these things are warnings for us. Okay. And here, here's the thing that occurred to me in reading this again. Paul didn't focus on the Israelites' baptism and on, their, and on the supernatural food and drink that God gave them. He didn't focus on these two items for no reason. In other words, he wasn't just looking into the history of Israel and just pulling two facts out of a hat. You know, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just pull out the baptism and I'll pull out the supernatural food and drink that God gave them in the desert. No, Jesus, I mean, Paul was clearly saying to the believers in Corinth, hey, you may have been baptized into Jesus Christ, and you may have the Eucharist, but none of this guarantees that you will make it to the promised land. And it, it, it struck me all at once, Paul thinks of the Eucharist as the new covenant version of the miracle of the manna and the water springing from the rock. In fact, I think it's interesting that he, that he elaborates and says the rock that followed them was Christ too. You know, that 
that he's basically saying, it, it's implicit, but Paul is basically saying to the Corinthian believers, you may have been baptized in Jesus Christ, and you may have your own form of supernatural food and drink, that is the Eucharist, but that doesn't guarantee that you're going to make it to the end. Think, think of it like this. The baptism of the Israelites was a type, as you said about the baptism of John. The new covenant fulfillment of that type is the baptism of Jesus Christ, by which we really are born anew and given the Holy Spirit and changed, uh, given hearts of flesh. Well, the food and drink that God gave the Israelites in the wilderness, it was miraculous. It was a miracle, and yet it was a type. It was a shadow. It was a mere shadow of what was to come. And so the question comes, what does this imply about the new covenant fulfillment in the Eucharist? Again, I like to kind of try and go back and think about where my head was on these questions before mm-hmm. I began to see what what you're talking about beginning to see. And I uh, I heard that passage from uh, 1 Corinthians preached on a number of times. I Bible quizzed on 1 Corinthians, as I've mentioned before, because, mm-hmm. you know, I don't have anything real to brag about. Uh, but when you hear about, you know, your ancestors, they had, they were, they were saved through the Red Sea and they were given manna in the desert. That was sort of code for your ancestors, you know, saw the power mm-hmm. of God and yet they did not obey God. As a general way of saying, you too have seen mm-hmm. God's power. Will you also, you know, forget what you've seen and forget God's providence? But again, you know, Paul could have used any number of things. He said, you know, you saw how God struck the yeah. firstborn dead, you know, or you saw how God made like a hailstorm mm-hmm. and, you know, rained toads around Egypt and did mm-hmm. all kinds of weird, gross things with boils. And, you know, all the examples that could have been used from the history of the people of Israel. I mean, you saw how God helped you defeat the Canaanites. Mm-hmm. You saw how David was given power to defeat. I mean, all kinds of things that are throughout salvation history that Paul could have pointed to. But he says, baptism and supernatural food and drink, which, again, you know, fast-forwarding to the Church Fathers, baptism and supernatural food and drink are, like, all over the place in the writings of the early Church. It's clear what they thought this meant. Yes, Whether or not I agreed with them, it's clear what the earliest Christians thought this meant. Yeah, and again, if the manna, if the Old Covenant version was the type, then does it make sense that the New Covenant fulfillment is going to be a, a simple symbolic memorial does it make sense bigger? that the second person of the trinity through whom all things were created as john says in the first chapter of his gospel would become incarnate in order to make a relationship with him a, a purely spiritual yeah. kind of gnostic reality no it doesn't make it doesn't mm-hmm. make sense he 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 brings about the redemption of uh, of the material world by his own incarnation. So there's more going on here okay. than just, you know, it's just All a right. metaphor. And so let's move forward because we have a lot to cover. Okay, so there's the typology of the manna, but there was also the typology of the bread of the presence, which we looked at, the bread of presence, another Old Testament type, another Old Testament shadow that seemed to have its fulfillment in the New Testament in the Eucharist. Okay, let me back up then slightly. We saw a couple of weeks back the bread of the presence. In the tabernacle, and then later in the temple, there was this beautiful golden table upon which fresh loaves of bread were prepared every Sabbath and placed along with bowls for wine, and they were to be kept perpetually. Okay, This bread of the presence, it was prepared 
to serve, we learn from Leviticus 24, chapter 24, to serve as a memorial of the covenant. It was a memorial of the covenant that God had made with his people at Sinai. But also, Leviticus 24, verse 9 tells us that a portion of it was to be eaten by the priests in a holy place. So it's a memorial of the covenant, but it's also a sacred meal to be eaten in a holy place, which makes me think, and um, I don't think I have to bet too much to say it makes you think as well, it makes me think that the bread of the presence was designed in particular not just to serve as a memorial of the covenant in general, but to serve as a memorial of the sacred meal that Moses and Aaron and the other elders of Israel had shared in God's presence on the mountain to seal the covenant. We read about this in Exodus 24, verses 8 through 11, to remind those listening that maybe didn't see that episode. Moses took the blood and he threw it upon the people, and he said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Here's the God of here's the bread of the presence. They, they saw the God of Israel, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank with God. Thus the bread of God's presence. Okay? It was to remind them of that time when God was present with them, and they ate and drank with God. Now scroll forward to the Last Supper. Jesus takes the cup, and he repeats almost verbatim the words of Moses when he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Remember, Moses had sprinkled the blood and said, here is the blood of the covenant. Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, and then do this as a memorial of me. He repeats the very words of Moses, and he institutes the Eucharist, which seems to be the new covenant fulfillment then of this bread of the presence. And so again, I ask the question, if the type which symbolized God's presence with his people was great, how much greater should the fulfillment be? Yeah, there's a <laughs> lot in there. And this whole question of the bread of the presence and the yeah. bowls of wine, uh, you know, all the way up through actually the time of Christ, uh, and I don't, I'm not going to get into it because, first of all, it's a very mm-hmm. deep rabbit hole. And second of all, I'm going to do a terrible job at representing all that there is to know about it. But the Essene community, uh, which we have reason to believe John the Baptist was associated with at the time of Jesus, you know, they were having daily memorial meals of bread and wine mm-hmm. in their sort mm-hmm. of Essene community. And I don't want to go into too much of that, but to give you an idea that this was something that was mm-hmm. a real part of of Jewish worship. I if you want to really dig into it, I'm I'm showing and telling Dr. John Bergson's book, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, where Good. he goes into, you know, how the Essenes used bread and wine as part of like a sacred meal. And these were the guys who, again, were, you mm-hmm. know, one of the Jewish sects that was that was active, very active in the well, time as of we Christ mentioned himself. when we had a, the entire episode on the bread of the presence, here you have Melchizedek the priest king in the Old Testament who comes with bread and wine that he's offered up to God Most High and shares it with Abraham. Then you have the Essenes, as you said there, the bread and the wine. You have the bread. And they're using the Melchizedek thing as their uh, as their reason yes, for doing it. and then you have this. the bread of the presence. And again, just that title, think about it. And the word, the Hebrew word for presence is the same word that you would translate face. So 
the bread was to remind them of the face of God when he met with Moses, Aaron, and the rest, and they shared this meal together. Well, if the bread as a type, as a symbol, the old covenant shadow presents is about the presence of God, then what does that say about the real presence of Christ in the fulfillment, in the new covenant fulfillment, the Eucharist? Okay, and then there's an, there are more old covenant types of the Eucharist, though. Not just the manna, not just the bread of the presence, but I came to see that there was a pattern, really, of miraculous meals running throughout the pages of the Old Testament, usually involving a small amount of food that is somehow miraculously multiplied to feed a number of people. This is a pattern, and these also seemed to culminate in the Last Supper and the Eucharist. So let me run through the pattern again just quickly so that that doesn't sound just like words. 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah takes a small amount of meal and oil, and he multiplies it to feed a poor widow and her son throughout the time of drought. And here's what Elijah said, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of meal shall not be spent, and the cruise of oil shall not fail, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So here you have this miracle of multiplication. Scroll forward to 2 Kings chapter 4, and the prophet Elisha performs a similar miracle. He meets a woman, again a widow. Her husband has died. Her two children, in fact, are about to be sold into slavery to pay off debts that she can't pay. All she has is one little jar of oil, quote, unquote. Elisha says to her, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not a few. So she does this. She runs around to all of her neighbors. She gathers every pot, every vessel, every jug, every cup that she can find. And the prophet miraculously multiplies the oil that she had in her one little jar to fill every one of these vessels to overflowing. In fact, at the end, he says, bring me some more. I mean, I mean, she says to her son, bring me some more. And the son says, that's it. And that's when the oil stopped, okay? So another miracle of multiplication. Later in that same chapter, 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha does it again. He miraculously multiplies a few barley loaves to feed a hundred of his disciples. Now, I had never really noticed this before. It's sort of like the water and spirit deal when we were talking about baptism. I'd re- I had never really noticed this before, but the closer I looked at it, Matt, the more the Old Testament seemed to be filled with stories involving miraculous meals, that this was an actual pattern in the Old Testament. And then, lo and behold, we move into the New Testament, and what do we find Jesus doing? We find him transforming water into wine, a miracle meal, not a complete meal, but wine. And then, in an episode that's recorded in all four Gospels, very important, we find Jesus taking five loaves and two fish, blessing them, breaking them, and multiplying them miraculously to feed a crowd of thousands of men, women, and children. In fact, then there's another episode in which 4,000. So this is like one of the central miracles that is repeated in all the Gospels and has made it very, very clear. And what is all this pointing toward is the question that came to me and that I present now. It's all pointing toward the Last Supper, where the Gospel writers consciously pattern their description of our Lord's actions after the multiplication of the loaves and fish. Okay? Remember how Jesus had everyone in the miracle of the loaves and fish. Remember how he had everybody sit down on the grass? 
recline on the grass. And then we read that he took the loaves and fish, that he blessed them, that he broke them, and then he gave them. Okay? He took the loaves, he blessed, he broke, he gave, and they gave to the people. Well, at the Last Supper, and I know we've said this in a couple episodes, but it's worth repeating. We read that while the disciples were reclining at the table, just like the people sitting down on the grass, Jesus took, same verbs, took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. And then he says, do this as a memorial of me. Repeat this. In other words, the Last Supper is depicted by all of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Last Supper is depicted as the culmination of this biblical pattern of miraculous meals. It's presented as a repetition of the multiplication of the loaves and the fish, and the Eucharist is presented as the repetition of the Last Supper. Yeah, which you one? missed one, by the way. You missed one from Luke chapter 24. After the resurrection of Jesus, when he's traveling yeah. anonymously with those disciples on the road to Emmaus, and uh, they say, you know, boy, it's been crazy. And he says, well, what's mm -hmm. been crazy? Uh, tell me what's been going on. And they're like, well, are yeah. you the only person who doesn't know what's happening? Of course, Jesus is the only one who does know what's happening, but they walk and he explains salvation history to them. And then it says that, uh, you know, mm -hmm. he's going to walk on. And this is starting around verse 30. It says, when he was at the table with them, they invited him to stay. He said, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it, <clears throat> gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and then he vanished from their sight. I mean, it, it gets about, I mean, it gives you chills. They, and they go back, and this is what's the crazy part. They go back, and they talk to the other disciples, and they say how Jesus had been known I know, to them. I know, that is, a, the that is a mysterious, bread. wonderful you know, I didn't include it because it's after the resurrection and I was building up this pattern toward the Last Supper and the, and the Eucharist, but that's a magical and a mysterious passage that um, a lot of speculate, you know, I don't know, you know, it's very interesting though that they didn't recognize him until he takes, he blesses, and he breaks, and then they know it's him. And, 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 and the fact that he vanishes, I know yeah. some commentators have said, this is like the Eucharist where where Christ is present, but he vanishes, and, and he appears under the form of bread yeah. and wine. Well, we know at least, at the very least, that the, in the early church, one of the mm -hmm. many uh, shorthand ways they had to referring uh, to uh, the Lord's mm -hmm. Supper, the Last Supper, Holy Communion, was mm -hmm. the breaking of the bread. You know, I mean, this is yeah. this is one yeah. of the terms in the early church. So a lot of mystery in there, but again, miraculous meal after miraculous meal after miraculous meal in the scriptures. And Jesus mm -hmm. comes, uh, you know, he's not saying that looked like a, you know, an interesting thing. Maybe I'll try that. No, he's a fulfillment of the things right. that all right. those things were right. pointing to. Right. Um, and he fulfills it in the Last Supper, and then he announces the Eucharist. He commands the Eucharist as a repetition of that, as a repetition of, of what's happening in the Last Supper. So... Tie, you know, tie these all together. We've got the manna, the bread of the presence, all of these miracle meals patterned all the way through Scripture and culminating in the, in, in the Last Supper and the Eucharist. I could see how all of this biblical typology pointed toward the Eucharist. And here's the thing. If the Eucharist was the fulfillment of all these types and shadows, it wouldn't make any sense for the Eucharist to be nothing more than another type you know, as it were, for the Eucharist to be nothing more than another shadow, that is another 
a symbolic meal, a merely symbolic meal. The new covenant fulfillment is always greater than the old covenant type. And we can see this all the way along. I mean, if the Old Testament exodus was great, the children of Israel brought out of bondage in Egypt, how much greater is the new covenant exodus where Jesus leads us out of bondage to sin and to death? You know, the fulfillment is, or the the type is nothing in comparison with the fulfillment. If the old covenant where God gave them a pillar of or led them by a pillar of cloud during the day, and a pillar of fire at night through 40 years all the way to the to the land of promise. If that was great, how much greater is it when we read in the new covenant that the Holy Spirit lives within us to guide us, you know, through the desert, through the wilderness of this life into our eternal home. And so you go on point by point by point. If the Eucharist is the fulfillment of all these old covenant types, then the Eucharist is the true manna. It's the true supernatural food and drink. It's the true bread of God's presence, making God present, the real presence of Christ. It's the true miracle meal, you know, it's it, in which a little bit of bread and wine are transformed, multiplied miraculously to feed everyone in the world. All of these. We didn't even cover all the ways that the early Christians saw mm-hmm. typology uh, fulfilled in the Lord's Supper in the Eucharist. I mean, there's there's talk in the early Christian documents about how you know the in the in yeah. the Garden of Eden you've got the tree of life, and you eat that fruit and you live forever. Whereas mm-hmm. Jesus, uh, the cross is the new tree of life. He is the fruit on the tree, and you know Jesus says in John six, you know, eat and live mm-hmm. forever. You know, uh, he's the new fruit on the tr- new tree of life. I mean, the typology just is is wild when you start digging in. It's it's everywhere. And again, it's like, it's like with baptism, mm-hmm. you and mm-hmm. I would, you know, do a word study, you look up in the concordance, where does baptism, where is it mentioned in the Bible? Well, it's mentioned a whole lot of places where the word baptism isn't actually used. It's a type and pattern of how God communicates himself to his people. Well, okay, to tie this up, let me just say this, Matt, also the book of Revelation, the new heaven, the new earth coming down and the trees and fruit for all the nations. Uh, it, these images are everywhere in the Bible. But these are some of his historical then, last week and this week, some of the historical and biblical evidences that accumulated to move me in the direction of faith in the real presence. And I want to confess, it's not easy to have faith in the real presence. I mean, this is a miracle. It's not easy to sit in mass every single day and to look forward and believe that a miracle is taking place right right in front of your eyes. And I, I, I have to confess Every single day in Mass, when I kneel before you know the tabernacle, when I look there, I see the little red light shining and the candle up there. The prayer just comes naturally to my lips. Lord, the, the prayer of that man, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Give me more faith to understand the miracle of what's happening. But I got to say, on the other hand, that I love, this is one of the things I love about being Catholic. I love this truth. I love this truth that, that Christ wants to come to us in our life, in a physical real way. It, it it transforms what I used to view as just a church building, which, you know, you can make a church out of a bowling alley or out of a warehouse or, or any kind of thing, but it transforms that into a holy sanctuary where it, that's why people become quiet when they go into a Catholic church, you know, and it's very natural. Le- at least it's why they should. Yeah. Well, when people go into a Catholic church, even non-Catholics, when they walk in, there's a tendency to sit down and kind of just look around, um, 
I want to tell one little story as I close and you can close with every, you can have the last, last word, but, um, two Christmases back, my, my grandson Johnny, who's 10 years old now, he was about eight then, I think he got a new basketball for Christmas and we're at church on Sunday morning. We're all coming out of mass. I'm in the parking lot and we're climbing into the cars and I, and I'm looking around, I can't see Johnny anywhere. And I said, you know, where's Johnny? All of a sudden I see him running out of the church with his basketball and he runs up to us and he says, I wanted to show Jesus my new basketball. And I, I, I just thought to myself, this is, this is an image. This is a concept that would never, ever have crossed my mind when I was a Baptist. But somehow this has been inculcated. I mean, this has been taught to Johnny to where he actually thought, he, he thought I'm going to grab my basketball and I'm going to run back into the church quickly so I can show Jesus my new basketball. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, and you know, the first time you hear a Catholic talk like that, you're like, well, I thought Jesus was everywhere. And well, he is. Yes. But he's also uniquely, uh, you know, chose to present himself to us in this sacramental way, uh, you know, in this mysterious way, just as God, the second person of the Trinity, everywhere, but he chose to mm -hmm. reveal himself incarnate uh, as a baby, you know, in Bethlehem. You know, he chooses to reveal himself. God is everywhere. Right, but he chooses yeah. to reveal himself to us in particular ways. At particular but if I was times. in Palestine at the time, and one of the disciples had run up, run up to me, Andrew, you know, or Nathaniel, said, "Come and meet Jesus," I certainly wouldn't have said, "Oh, God's everywhere. I'll just stay here." Right, you know, but you know that tends to be our attitude if we, you know, tend to over spiritualize, you know, our Christian faith. You mentioned I get the last word, Ken, and that's because yeah. I, uh, I'm the credits, so. Uh, okay. I just want to give you credit for that. Well, you don't need to give me too much. I'm going to give credit to Seth, our web designer, because he is the one who is in charge of chnetwork.org, where you can go to find more episodes of On the Journey, where you can also find uh, stories of other people like Ken and I who are just as crazy, maybe even crazier, and came from other backgrounds, Assemblies of God, Seventh-day Adventists, maybe no faith at all, and are Catholic now. And here are kind of some of their reasons um, to sort of round out the picture. You can also come visit us in our online community, community.chnetwork.org. Dot org. Um, you can find that through the connect button on our website as well. The shows and resources page is where Ken and I hang out and talk at length with people about these on the journey episodes. And we would love to hear from you and talk to you in there. In the meantime, Ken, thanks so much. We'll talk to you next week. Next week. Thank you.